Chapter 5, Part 2 of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Read by Tig Hines. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. His phrase was greeted by a strange laugh from a student who lounged against the wall, his peaked cap down on his eyes. The laugh, pitched in a high key and coming from a so muscular frame, seemed like the whinny of an elephant. The student's body shook all over, and to ease his mirth he rubbed both his hands delightedly over his groins. "'Lynch is awake,' said Cranley. Lynch, for answer, straightened himself and thrust forward his chest. "'Lynch puts out his chest,' said Stephen, "'as a criticism of life.' Lynch smote himself sonorously on the chest and said, "'Who has anything to say about my girth?' Cranley took him at the word and the two began to tussle. When their faces had flushed with the struggle, they drew apart, panting. Stephen bent down towards Davin, who, intent on the game, had paid no heed to the talk of the others. "'And how was my little tame goose?' he asked. "'Did he sign too?' Davin nodded and said, "'And you, Stevie?' Stephen shook his head. "'You're a terrible man, Stevie,' said Davin, taking the short pipe from his mouth. "'Always alone.' Now that you have signed the petition for universal peace, said Stephen, I suppose you will burn that little copy-book I saw in your room. As Davin did not answer, Stephen began to quote, Long pace Fiena, right incline Fiena, Fiena by numbers, salute one, two. That's a different question, said Davin. I'm an Irish nationalist first and foremost, but that's you all out. You're a born sneerer, Stevie. When you make the next rebellion with hurly-sticks, said Stephen, and want the indispensable informer, tell me. I can find you a few in this college. I can't understand you, said Davin. One time I hear you talk against English literature. Now you talk against the Irish informers. What with your name and your ideas? Are you Irish at all? Come with me now to the office of arms, and I will show you the tree of my family, said Stephen. Then be one of us, said Davin. Why don't you learn Irish? Why did you drop out of the league class after the first lesson? You know one reason why, answered Stephen. Davin tossed his head and laughed. Oh, come now, he said. It's on account of that certain young lady and Father Morden. But that's all in your own mind, Stevie. They were only talking and laughing. Stephen paused and laid a friendly hand upon Davin's shoulder. Do you remember, he said, when we knew each other first? The first morning we met, you asked me to show you the way to the matriculation class putting a very strong stress on the first syllable. You remember? Then you used to address the Jesuits as father. You remember? I asked myself about you. Is he as innocent as his speech? I'm a simple person, said Davin. You know that. When you told me that night in Harcourt Street those things about your private life, honest to God, Stevie, I was not able to eat me dinner. I was quite bad. I was awake a long time that night. Why did you tell me those things? Thanks, said Stephen. You mean I'm a monster? No, said Davin, but I wish you had not told me. A tide began to surge beneath the calm surface of Stephen's friendliness. This race and this country and this life produced me, he said. I shall express myself as I am. Try to be one of us, repeated Davin. In heart you're an Irishman, but your pride is too powerful. My ancestors threw off their language and took another, Stephen said. They allowed a handful of foreigners to subject them. Do you fancy I'm going to pay in my own life and person debts they made? What for? For our freedom, 
said Davin. No honourable and sincere man, said Stephen, has given up to you his life and his youth and his affections from the days of Tone to those of Parnell, but you sold him to the enemy or failed him in need or reviled him and left him for another, and you invite me to be one of you. I'd see a damned first. They died for their ideal, Stevie, said Davin. Our day'll come yet, believe me. Stephen, following his own thought, was silent for an instant. The soul is born, he said vaguely, first in those moments I told you of. It has a slow and dark birth, more mysterious than the birth of the body. When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. Davin knocked the ashes from his pipe. Too deep for me, Stevie, he said, but a man's country comes first. Ireland first, Stevie. You can be a poet or a mystic after. Do you know what Ireland is? asked Stephen with cold violence. Ireland is the old sow that eats her farrow. Davin rose from his box and went towards the players, shaking his head sadly. But in a moment his sadness left him, and he was hotly disputing with Cranley and the two players who had finished their game. A match of four was arranged, Cranley insisting, however, that his ball should be used. He let it rebound twice or thrice to his hand and struck it strongly and swiftly towards the base of the alley exclaiming in answer to its thud, "'Your soul!' Stephen stood with Lynch till the score began to rise. Then he plucked him by the sleeve to come away. Lynch obeyed, saying, "'Let us eke go, as Cranley has it.' Stephen smiled at this side-thrust. They passed back through the garden and out through the hall where the doddering porter was pinning up a hall notice in the frame. At the foot of the steps they halted and Stephen took a packet of cigarettes from his pocket and offered it to his companion. "'I know you are poor,' he said. "'Damn your yellow insolence,' answered Lynch. This second proof of Lynch's culture made Stephen smile again. "'It was a great day for European culture,' he said, when you made up your mind to swear in yellow. They lit their cigarettes and turned to the right. After a pause Stephen began, "'Aristotle has not defined pity and terror.' I have. I say. Lynch halted and said bluntly, Stop. I won't listen. I am sick. I was out last night on a yellow drunk with Horden and Goggins. Stephen went on. Pity is the feeling which arrests the mind in the presence of whatsoever is grave and constant in human sufferings, and unites it with the human sufferer. Terror is the feeling which arrests the mind in the presence of whatsoever is grave and constant in human sufferings, and unites it with a secret cause. Repeat said Lynch. Stephen repeated the definition slowly. A girl got into a hansom a few days ago, he went on, in London. She was on her way to meet her mother, whom she had not seen for many years. At the corner of a street the shaft of a lorry shivered the window of the hansom in the shape of a star. A long fine needle of the shivered glass pierced her heart. She died on the instant. The reporter called it a tragic death. It is not. It is remote from terror and pity according to the terms of my definitions. The tragic emotion, in fact, is a face looking two ways, towards terror and towards pity, both of which are phases of it. You see, I use the word arrest. I mean that the tragic emotion is static, or rather the dramatic emotion is. The feelings excited by improper art are kinetic, desire or loathing. Desire urges us to possess, to go to something. Loathing urges us to abandon to go from something. 
the arts which excite them, pornographical or didactic, are therefore improper arts. The aesthetic emotion, or use the general term, is therefore static. The mind is arrested and raised above desire and loathing. You say that art must not excite desire, said Lynch. I told you that one day I wrote my name in pencil on the backside of the Venus of Praxiteles in the museum. Was that not desire? I speak of normal natures, said Stephen. You also told me that when you were a boy in that charming Carmelite school, you ate pieces of dried cow dung. Lynch broke into a whinny of laughter and again rubbed both his hands over his groins, but without taking them from his pockets. Oh, I did, I did, he cried. Stephen turned towards his companion and looked at him for a moment boldly in the eyes. Lynch, recovering from his laughter, answered his look from his humbled eyes. The long, slender, flattened skull beneath the long-pointed cap brought before Stephen's mind the image of a hooded reptile. The eyes, too, were reptile-like, in glint and gaze, yet at that instant, humbled and alert in their look, they were lit by one tiny human point, the window of a shriveled soul, poignant and self-embittered. As for that, Stephen said in polite parenthesis, we are all animals. I also am an animal. You are, said Lynch. But we are just now in a mental world, Stephen continued. The desire and loathing excited by improper aesthetic means are really not aesthetic emotions, not only because they are kinetic in character, but also because they are not more than physical. Our flesh shrinks from what it dreads and responds to the stimulus of what it desires by a purely reflex action of the nervous system. Our eyelid closes before we are aware that the fly is about to enter our eye. Not always, said Lynch critically. In the same way, said Stephen, your flesh responded to the stimulus of a naked statue, but it was, I say, simply a reflex action of the nerves. Beauty expressed by the artist cannot waken in us an emotion which is kinetic or a sensation which is purely physical. It awakens, or ought to awaken, or induces, or ought to induce, an aesthetic stasis, an ideal pity or an ideal terror, a stasis called forth, prolonged, and at last dissolved by what I call the rhythm of beauty. What is that exactly? asked Lynch. Rhythm, said Stephen, is the first formal aesthetic relation of part to part in any aesthetic whole, or of an aesthetic whole to its part or parts, or of any part of the aesthetic whole of which it is a part. If that is rhythm, said Lynch, let me hear what you call beauty, and please remember, though I did eat a cake of cow dung once, that I admire only beauty. Stephen raised his cap as if in greeting. Then, blushing slightly, he laid his hand on Lynch's thick tweed sleeve. We are right, he said, and the others are wrong. To speak of these things and to try to understand their nature, and having understood it, to try slowly and humbly and constantly to express, to press out again from the gross earth or what it brings forth, from sound and shape and colour which are the prison gates of our soul, an image of the beauty we have come to understand, that is art. They had reached the canal bridge and turning from their course went on by the trees. A crude grey light mirrored in the sluggish water and a smell of wet branches over their heads seemed to war against the course of Stephen's thought. But you have not answered my question, said Lynch. What is art? What is the beauty it expresses? That was the first definition I gave you, you sleepy-headed wretch, said Stephen, when I began to try to think out the matter for myself. Do you remember the night? 
Cranley lost his temper and began to talk about Wicklow Bacon. I remember, said Lynch. He told us about them flaming fat devils of pigs. Art, said Stephen, is the human disposition of sensible or intelligible matter for an aesthetic end. You remember the pigs and forget that. You were a distressing pair, you and Cranley. Lynch made a grimace at the raw grey sky and said, If I am to listen to your aesthetic philosophy, give me at least another cigarette. I don't care about it. I don't even care about women. Damn you and damn everything. I want a job of five hundred a year. You can't get me one. Stephen handed him the packet of cigarettes. Lynch took the last one that remained, saying simply, Proceed. Aquinas, said Stephen, says that is beautiful, the apprehension of which pleases. Lynch nodded. I remember that, he said. Pulchra sunt quae visa placent. He uses the word visa, said Stephen, to cover aesthetic apprehensions of all kinds, whether through sight or hearing or through any other avenue of apprehension. This word, though it is vague, is clear enough to keep away good and evil which excite desire and loathing. It means certainly a stasis and not a kinesis. How about the true? It produces also a stasis of the mind. You would not write your name in pencil across the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle. No said Lynch. Give me the hypotenuse of the Venus of Praxiteles. Static, therefore, said Stephen. Plato, I believe, said that beauty is the splendour of truth. I don't think that it has a meaning, but the true and the beautiful are akin. Truth is beheld by the intellect, which is appeased by the most satisfying relations of the intelligible. Beauty is beheld by the imagination, which is appeased by the most satisfying relations of the sensible. The first step in the direction of truth is to understand the frame and scope of the intellect itself, to comprehend the act itself of intellection. Aristotle's entire system of philosophy rests upon his book of psychology, and that, I think, rests on his statement that the same attribute cannot at the same time and in the same connection belong to and not belong to the same subject. The first step in the direction of beauty is to understand the frame and scope of the imagination, to comprehend the act itself of aesthetic apprehension. Is that clear? But what is beauty? asked Lynch impatiently. Out with another definition. Something we see and like. Is that the best you and Aquinas can do? Let us take woman, said Stephen. Let us take her, said Lynch fervently. The Greek, the Turk, the Chinese, the Copt, the Hottentot, said Stephen, all admire a different type of female beauty. That seems to be a maze out of which we cannot escape. I see, however, two ways out. One is this hypothesis, that every physical quality admired by men in women is in direct connection with the manifold functions of women for the propagation of the species. It may be so. The world, it seems, is drearier than even you, Lynch, imagined. For my part, I dislike that way out. It leads to eugenics rather than to aesthetic. It leads you out of the maze into a new gaudy lecture-room where McCann, with one hand on the origin of the species, and the other hand on the New Testament, tells you that you admired the great flanks of Venus because you felt that she would bear you burly offspring, and admired her great breasts because you felt that she would give good milk to her children and to yours. Then McCann is a sulphur-yellow lawyer, said Lynch energetically. <laughs> there remains another way out, said Stephen, laughing. To wit, said Lynch. This hypothesis, Stephen began. A long dray laden with old iron came round the corner of Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital, 
covering the end of Stephen's speech with a harsh roar of jangled and rattling metal. Lynch closed his ears and gave out oath after oath till the dray had passed. Then he turned on his heel rudely. Stephen turned also and waited for a few moments till his companion's ill-humour had had its vent. This hypothesis, Stephen repeated, is the other way out. But though the same object may not seem beautiful to all people, all people who admire a beautiful object find in it certain relations which satisfy and coincide with the stages themselves of all aesthetic apprehension. These relations of the sensible, visible to you through one form and to me through another, must be therefore the necessary qualities of beauty. Now, we can return to our old friend St. Thomas for another pennyworth of wisdom. Lynch laughed. It amuses me vastly, he said, to hear you quoting him time after time like a jolly round friar. Are you laughing in your sleeve? McAllister, answered Stephen, would call my aesthetic theory a plaid Aquinas. So far as this side of aesthetic philosophy extends, Aquinas will carry me all along the line. When we come to the phenomena of artistic conception, artistic gestation and artistic reproduction, I require a new terminology and a new personal experience. Of course, said Lynch. After all, Aquinas, in spite of his intellect, wasn't exactly a good round friar. But you will tell me about the new personal experience and new terminology some other day. Hurry up and finish the first part. Who knows, said Stephen, smiling. Perhaps Aquinas would understand me better than you. He was a poet himself. He wrote a hymn for Maundy Thursday. It begins with the words, Pange lingua gloriosi. They say it is the highest glory of the hymnal. It is an intricate and soothing hymn. I like it. But there is no hymn that can be put beside that mournful and majestic processional song, the Vexilla Regis, of Venantitis Fortunatus. Lynch began to sing softly and solemnly in a deep bass voice. Implita sunt quae concinit, David fideli carmine, dicendo nationibus, regnavit alinio deus. That's great, he said, well pleased. Great music. They turned into Lower Mount Street. A few steps from the corner, a fat young man, wearing a silk neckcloth, saluted them and stopped. Did you hear the results of the exams? he asked. Griffin was plucked. Halpin and O'Flynn are through the home civil. Moonan got fifth place in the Indian. O'Shaughnessy got fourteenth. The Irish fellows and clerks gave them a feed last night. They all ate curry. His pallid, bloated face expressed benevolent malice. And as he had advanced through his tidings of success, his small, fat-encircled eyes vanished out of sight and his weak, wheezing voice out of hearing. In reply to a question of Stephen's, his eyes and his voice came forth again from their lurking places. Yes, McCullough and I, he said. He's taken pure mathematics and I'm taking constitutional history. There are twenty subjects. I'm taking botany too. You know I'm a member of the field club. He drew back from the other two in a stately fashion and placed a plump woolen-gloved hand on his breast, from which muttered wheezing laughter at once broke forth. Bring us a few turnips and onions the next time you go out, said Stephen dryly, to make a stew. The fat student laughed indulgently and said, We are all highly respectable people in the field club. Last Saturday we went out to Glenmalure. Seven of us. With women, Donovan, 
said Lynch. Donovan again laid his hand on his chest and said, Our end is the acquisition of knowledge. Then he said quickly, I hear you are writing some essays about aesthetics. Stephen made a vague gesture of denial. Goethe and Lessing, said Donovan, have written a lot on that subject, the classical school and the romantic school and all that. The Leocoon interested me very much when I read it. Of course, it is idealistic, German, ultra-profound. Neither of the others spoke. Donovan took leave of them urbanely. I must go, he said softly and benevolently. I have a strong suspicion, amounting almost to a conviction, that my sister intended to make pancakes today for the dinner of the Donovan family. Goodbye, Stephen said in his wake. Don't forget the turnips for me and my mate. Lynch gazed after him, his lip curling in slow scorn till his face resembled a devil's mask. To think that that yellow pancake-eating excrement can get a good job, he said at length, and I have to smoke cheap cigarettes. They turned their faces towards Merrion Square and went for a little in silence. To finish what I was saying about beauty, said Stephen, the most satisfying relations of the sensible must therefore correspond to the necessary phases of artistic apprehension. Find these and you find the qualities of universal beauty. Aquinas says, at pulchritudinum tria recreruntur, integritas consonantia claritas. I translate it so. Three things are needed for beauty, wholeness, harmony, and radiance. Do these correspond to the phases of apprehension? Are you following? Of course I am, said Lynch. If you think I have an excrementitious intelligence, run after Donovan and ask him to listen to you. Stephen pointed to a basket which a butcher's boy had slung inverted on his head. Look at that basket, he said. I see it, said Lynch. In order to see that basket, said Stephen, your mind first of all separates the basket from the rest of the visible universe, which is not the basket. The first phase of apprehension is a bounding line drawn about the object to be apprehended. An aesthetic image is presented to us either in space or in time. What is audible is presented in time, what is visible is presented in space. But temporal or spatial, the aesthetic image is first luminously apprehended as self-bounded and self-contained upon the immeasurable background of space or time which is not it. You apprehend it as one thing, you see it as one whole, you apprehend its wholeness. That is integritas. Bullseye, said Lynch, laughing. Go on. Then, said Stephen, you pass from point to point, led by its formal lines. You apprehend it is balanced part against part within its limits. You feel the rhythm of its structure. In other words, the synthesis of immediate perception is followed by the analysis of apprehension. Having first felt that it is one thing, you now feel that it is a thing. You apprehend it as complex, multiple, divisible, separable, made up of its parts, the result of its parts and their sum. Harmonious. That is consonantia. Bullseye again, said Lynch wittily. Tell me now what is claritas and you win the cigar. The connotation of the word, Stephen said, is rather vague. Aquinas uses a term which seems to be inexact. It baffled me for a long time. It would lead you to believe that he had in mind symbolism or idealism, the supreme quality of beauty being a light from some other world, the idea of which the matter is but the shadow, the reality of which it is but the symbol. I thought he might mean that claritas is the artistic discovery and representation of the divine purpose in anything 
or a force of generalization which would make the aesthetic image a universal one, make it outshine its proper conditions. But that is literary talk. I understand it so. When you have apprehended that basket as one thing and then analyzed it according to its form and apprehended it as a thing, you make the only synthesis which is logically and aesthetically permissible. You see that it is that thing which it is and no other thing, the radiance of which he speaks in the scholastic quiditas, the whatness of a thing. This supreme quality is felt by the artist when the aesthetic image is first conceived in his imagination. The mind in that mysterious instant Shelley likened beautifully to a fading coal. The instant wherein that supreme quality of beauty, the clear radiance of the aesthetic image, is apprehended luminously by the mind which has been arrested by its wholeness and fascinated by its harmony, is the luminous silent stasis of aesthetic pleasure, a spiritual state very like to that cardiac condition which the Italian physiologist, Luigi Galvani, using a phrase almost as beautiful as Shelley's, called the enchantment of the heart. Stephen paused, and though his companion did not speak, felt that his words had called up around them a thought-enchanted silence. What I have said, he began again, refers to beauty in the wider sense of the word, in the sense which the word has in the literary tradition. In the marketplace it has another sense. When we speak of beauty in the second sense of the term, our judgment is influenced in the first place by the art itself and by the form of that art. The image, it is clear, must be set between the mind or senses of the artist himself and the mind or senses of others. If you bear this in memory, you will see that art necessarily divides itself into three forms progressing from one to the next. These forms are the lyrical form, the form wherein the artist presents his image in immediate relation to himself, the epical form, the form wherein he presents his image in immediate relation to himself and to others, the dramatic form, the form wherein he presents his image in immediate relation to others. That you told me a few nights ago, said Lynch, and we began the famous discussion. I have a book at home, said Stephen, in which I have written down questions which are more amusing than yours were. In finding the answers to them, I found the theory of aesthetic which I am trying to explain. Here are some questions I set myself. Is a chair finely made, tragic or comic? Is the portrait of Mona Lisa good if I desire to see it? Is the bust of Sir Philip Crampton lyrical, epical or dramatic? If not, why not? <laughs> why not indeed? said Lynch, laughing. If a man, hacking in fury at a block of wood, Stephen continued, make there an image of a cow, is that image a work of art? If not, why not? That's a lovely one, said Lynch, laughing again. That has the true scholastic stink. Lessing, said Stephen, should not have taken a group of statues to write of. The art, being inferior, does not present the forms I spoke of distinguished clearly one from another. Even in literature, the highest and most spiritual art, the forms are often confused. The lyrical form is, in fact, the simplest verbal vesture of an instant of emotion, a rhythmical cry such as ages ago cheered on the man who pulled at the oar or dragged stones up a slope. He who utters it is more conscious of the instant of emotion than of himself as feeling emotion. The simplest epical form is seen emerging out of lyrical literature when the artist prolongs and broods upon himself as the centre of an epical event, and this form progresses till the centre of emotional gravity is equidistant from the artist himself and from others. The narrative is no longer purely personal. The personality of the artist passes into the narration itself. 
flowing round and round the persons and the action like a vital sea. This progress you will see easily in that old English ballad, Turpin Hero, which begins in the first person and ends in the third person. The dramatic form is reached when the vitality which has flowed and eddied round each person fills every person with such vital force that he or she assumes a proper and intangible aesthetic life. The personality of the artist, at first a cry or a cadence or a mood, and then a fluid and lambent narrative, finally refines itself out of existence, impersonalizes itself, so to speak. The aesthetic image in the dramatic form is life purified in and reprojected from the human imagination. The mystery of aesthetic, like that of material creation, is accomplished. The artist, like the god of creation, remains within or behind or beyond or above his handiwork, invisible, refined out of existence, indifferent, paring his fingernails. Trying to refine them also out of existence, said Lynch. A fine rain began to fall from the high-veiled sky, and they turned into the Duke's lawn to reach the National Library before the shower came. What do you mean? Lynch asked surlily, by prattin' about beauty and the imagination in this miserable godforsaken island. No wonder the artist retired within or behind his handiwork after having perpetrated this country. The rain fell faster. When they passed through the passage beside Kildare House, they found many students sheltering under the arcade of the library. Cranley, leaning against a pillar, was picking his teeth with a sharpened match, listening to some companions. Some girls stood near the entrance door. Lynch whispered to Stephen. Your beloved is here. Stephen took his place silently on the step below the group of students, heedless of the rain which fell fast, turning his eyes towards her from time to time. She too stood silently among her companions. She is no priest to flirt with, he thought with conscious bitterness, remembering how he had last seen her. Lynch was right. His mind, emptied of theory and courage, lapsed back into a listless peace. He heard the students talking among themselves. They spoke of two friends who had passed the final medical examination, of the chances of getting places on ocean liners, of poor and rich practices. It's all a bubble. An Irish country practice is better. Hines was two years in Liverpool and he says the same. A frightful hole, he says it was. Nothing but midwifery cases. Do you mean to say it is better to have a job here in the country than in a rich city like that? I know a fella. Hines has no brains. He got through by stewing. Pure stewing. Don't mind him. There's plenty of money to be made in a big commercial city. Depends on the practice. Ego credo ut vita pauperum et simpliciter atrox. Simpliciter sanguinarius atrox in Liverpoolio. Their voices reached his ears as if from a distance in interrupted pulsation. She was preparing to go away with her companions. The quick light shower had drawn off, tarrying in clusters of diamonds among the shrubs of the quadrangle, where an exhalation was breathed forth by the blackened earth. Their trim boots prattled as they stood on the steps of the colonnade, talking quietly and gaily, glancing at the clouds, holding their umbrellas at cunning angles against the few last raindrops, closing them again, holding their skirts demurely. And if he had judged her harshly, if her life were a simple rosary of ours, her life simple and strange as a bird's life, gay in the morning, restless all day, tired at sundown, 
her heart simple and willful as a bird's heart. Towards dawn he awoke. Oh, what sweet music! His soul was all dewy wet. Over his limbs in sleep pale cool waves of light had passed. He lay still, as if his soul lay amid cool waters, conscious of faint sweet music. His mind was waking slowly to a tremulous morning knowledge, a morning inspiration. A spirit filled him, pure as the purest water, sweet as dew, moving as music. But how faintly it was inbreathed, how passionlessly, as if the seraphim themselves were breathing upon him. His soul was waking slowly, fearing to awake wholly. It was that windless hour of dawn when madness wakes and strange plants open to the light and the moth flies forth silently. An enchantment of the heart. The night had been enchanted. In a dream or vision he had known the ecstasy of seraphic life. Was it an instant of enchantment only, or long hours and years and ages? The instant of inspiration seemed now to be reflected from all sides at once, from a multitude of cloudy circumstances of what had happened or of what might have happened. The instant flashed forth like a point of light, and now from cloud on cloud of vague circumstance confused form was veiling softly its afterglow. Oh, in the virgin womb of the imagination the word was made flesh. Gabriel the seraph had come to the virgin's chamber. An afterglow deepened within his spirit, whence the white flame had passed, deepening to a rose and ardent light. That rose and ardent light was her strange willful heart, strange that no man had known or would know, willful from before the beginning of the world, and lured by that ardent rose-like glow, the choirs of the seraphim were falling from heaven. Are you not weary of ardent ways, lure of the fallen seraphim? Tell no more of enchanted days. The verses passed from his mind to his lips, and murmuring them over, he felt the rhythmic movement of a villanelle pass through them. The rose-like glow sent forth its rays of rhyme. Ways, days, blaze, praise, rays. Its rays burned up the world, consumed the hearts of men and angels. The rays from the rose that was her willful heart. Your eyes have set man's heart ablaze, and you have had your will of him. Are you not weary of ardent ways? And then... The rhythm died away, ceased, began again to move and beat. And then smoke, incense ascending from the altar of the world. Above the flame the smoke of praise goes up from ocean rim to rim. Tell no more of enchanted days. Smoke went up from the whole earth, from the vapory oceans, smoke of her praise. The earth was like a swinging, swaying censer, a ball of incense, an ellipsoidal ball. The rhythm died out at once. The cry of his heart was broken. His lips began to murmur the first verses over and over, then went on stumbling through half-verses, stammering and baffled, then stopped. The heart's cry was broken. The veiled windless hour had passed, and behind the panes of the naked window the morning light was gathering. A bell beat faintly very far away. A bird twittered, Two birds, three. The bell and the bird ceased, and the dull white light spread itself east and west, covering the world, covering the rose-light in his heart. 
Fearing to lose all, he raised himself suddenly on his elbow to look for paper and pencil. There was neither on the table, only the soup plate he had eaten the rice from for supper and the candlestick with its tendrils of tallow and its paper socket, singed by the last flame. He stretched his arms wearily towards the foot of the bed, groping with his hands in the pockets of the coat that hung there. His fingers found a pencil and then a cigarette packet. He lay back and, tearing open the packet, placed the last cigarette on the window-ledge and began to write out the stanzas of the villanelle in small neat letters on the rough cardboard surface. Having written them out, he lay back on the lumpy pillow, murmuring them again. The lumps of knotted flock under his head reminded him of the lumps of knotted horsehair in the sofa of her parlour on which she used to sit, smiling or serious, asking himself why he had come, displeased with her and with himself, confounded by the print of the sacred heart above the untenanted sideboard. He saw her approach him in a lull of the talk and beg him to sing one of his curious songs. Then he saw himself sitting at the old piano, striking chords softly from its speckled keys and singing, amid the talk which had risen again in the room, to her who leaned beside the mantelpiece a dainty song of the Elizabethans, a sad and sweet loath to depart, the victory chant of Agincourt, the happy air of green sleeves. While he sang and she listened, or feigned to listen, his heart was at rest. But when the quaint old songs had ended, and he heard again the voices in the room, he remembered his own sarcasm, the house where young men are called by their Christian names a little too soon. At certain instants her eyes seemed about to trust him, but he had waited in vain. She passed now dancing lightly across his memory as she had been that night at the carnival ball, her white dress a little lifted, a white spray nodding in her hair. She danced lightly in the round. She was dancing towards him, and as she came, her eyes were a little averted and a faint glow was on her cheek. At the pause in the chain of hands, her hand had lain in his an instant, a soft merchandise. You are a great stranger now. Yes, I was born to be a monk. I am afraid you are a heretic. Are you much afraid? For answer, she had danced away from him along the chain of hands, dancing lightly and discreetly, giving herself to none. The white spray nodded to her dancing, and when she was in shadow the glow was deeper on her cheek. A monk. His own image started forth, a profaner of the cloister, a heretic Franciscan, willing and willing not to serve, spinning like Gerardino de Borgo Sandanino, a lithe web of sophistry and whispering in her ear. No, it was not his image. It was like the image of the young priest in whose company he had seen her last looking at him out of Dove's eyes, toying with the pages of her Irish phrase-book. Yes, yes, the ladies are coming round to us. I can see it every day. The ladies are with us, the best helpers the language has. And the church, Father Moran. The church, too, coming round, too. The work is going ahead there, too. Don't fret about the church. Bah! He had done well to leave the room in disdain. He had done well not to salute her on the steps of the library. He had done well to leave her to flirt with her priest, to toy with a church which was the scullery maid of Christendom. Rude, brutal anger routed the last lingering instant of ecstasy from his soul. It broke up violently her fair image and flung the fragments on all sides. On all sides distorted reflections of her image started from his memory. The flower-girl in the ragged dress, 
with damp, coarse hair and a hoyden's face, who had called herself his own girl and begged his hansel, the kitchen girl in the next house who sang over the clatter of her plates with the drawl of a country singer, the first bars of By Killarney's Lakes and Fells, a girl who had laughed gaily to see him stumble when the iron grating in the footpath near Cork Hill had caught the broken sole of his shoe, a girl he had glanced at, attracted by her small ripe mouth, as she passed out of Jacob's biscuit factory, who had cried to him over her shoulder, Do you like what you've seen in me, straight hair and curly eyebrows? And yet he felt that, however he might revile and mock her image, his anger was also a form of homage. He had left the classroom in disdain that was not wholly sincere, feeling that perhaps the secret of her race lay behind those dark eyes upon which her long lashes flung a quick shadow. He had told himself bitterly as he walked through the streets that she was a figure of the womanhood of her country, a bat-like soul waking to the consciousness of itself in darkness and secrecy and loneliness, tarrying a while loveless and sinless with her mild lover and leaving him to whisper of innocent transgressions in the latticed ear of a priest. His anger against her found vent in coarse railing at her paramour, whose name and voice and features offended his baffled pride a priested peasant, with a brother a policeman in Dublin and a brother a potboy in Moycullen. To him she would unveil her soul's shy nakedness, to one who was but schooled in the discharging of a formal rite rather than to him, a priest of the eternal imagination, transmuting the daily bread of experience into the radiant body of ever-living life. The radiant image of the Eucharist united again in an instant his bitter and despairing thoughts their cries arising unbroken in a hymn of thanksgiving. Our broken cries and mournful lays rise in one Eucharistic hymn. Are you not weary of ardent ways? While sacrificing hands upraise the chalice flowing to the brim, tell no more of enchanted days. He spoke the verses aloud from the first lines till the music and rhythm suffused his mind, turning it to quiet indulgence then copy them painfully to feel them the better by seeing them, then lay back on his bolster. The full morning light had come, no sound was to be heard, but he knew that all around him life was about to awaken in common noises, hoarse voices, sleepy prayers. Shrinking from that life he turned towards the wall, making a cowl of the blanket and staring at the great overblown scarlet flowers of the tattered wallpaper. He tried to warm his perishing joy in their scarlet glow, imagining a roseway from where he lay upwards to heaven, all strewn with scarlet flowers. Weary, weary, he too was weary of ardent ways. A gradual warmth, a languorous weariness, passed over him, descending along his spine from his closely cowled head. He felt it descend, and seeing himself as he lay, smiled. Soon he would sleep. He had written verses for her again after ten years. Ten years before she had worn her shawl cowlwise about her head, sending sprays of her warm breath into the night air, tapping her foot upon the glassy road. It was the last tram. The lank brown horses knew it and shook their bells to the clear night in admonition. The conductor talked with the driver, both nodding often in the green light of the lamp. They stood on the steps of the tram, he on the upper, she on the lower. She came up to his step many times between their phrases, and went down again, and once or twice remained beside him, forgetting to go down, 
and then went down. Let be! Let be! Ten years from that wisdom of children to his folly. If he sent her the verses, they would be read out at breakfast amid the tapping of eggshells. Folly, indeed! Her brothers would laugh and try to wrest the pages from each other with their strong, hard fingers. The suave priest, her uncle, seated in his armchair, would hold the page at arm's length, read it smiling and approve of the literary form. No, no, that was folly. Even if he sent her the verses, she would not show them to others. No, no, she could not. He began to feel that he had wronged her. A sense of her innocence moved him almost to pity her, an innocence he had never understood till he had come to the knowledge of it through sin, an innocence which she too had not understood while she was innocent or before the strange humiliation of her nature had first come upon her. Then first her soul had begun to live as his soul had when he had first sinned, and a tender compassion filled his heart as he remembered her frail pallor and her eyes, humbled and saddened by the dark shame of womanhood. While his soul had passed from ecstasy to languor, where had she been? Might it be, in the mysterious ways of spiritual life, that her soul at those same moments had been conscious of his homage? It might be. A glow of desire kindled again his soul and fired and fulfilled all his body. Conscious of his desire, she was waking from odorous sleep, the temptress of his villanelle. Her eyes, dark and with a look of languor, were opening to his eyes. Her nakedness yielded to him, radiant, warm, odorous and lavish-limbed, enfolded him like a shining cloud, enfolded him like water with a liquid life, and like a cloud of vapour or like waters circumfluent in space, the liquid letters of speech, symbols of the element of mystery, flowed forth over his brain. Are you not weary of ardent ways, lure of the fallen seraphim? Tell no more of enchanted days. Your eyes have set man's heart ablaze, and you have had your will of him. Are you not weary of ardent ways? Above the flame the smoke of praise goes up from ocean rim to rim. Tell no more of enchanted days. Our broken cries and mournful lays rise in one Eucharistic hymn. Are you not weary of ardent ways? While sacrificing hands upraise the chalice flowing to the brim, tell no more of enchanted days. And still you hold our longing gaze with languorous look and lavish limb. Are you not weary of ardent ways? Tell no more of enchanted days. End of chapter 5, part 2